Geogreve, good evening, and you're very welcome to The Leap of Faith. The subject of clerical sexual abuse is appallingly back in the headlines again, following the recent airing on radio of Black Rock Boys from RTE's Documentary on One about brothers Mark and David Ryan and the terrible sexual abuse they suffered as boys at Black Rock College in South County Dublin at the hands of members of the Spiritans, formerly known as the Holy Ghost Fathers, in the 70s and 80s. To discuss the documentary and its aftermath, we're joined this evening by Colm O'Gorman and Jermud Martin. Colm O'Gorman is the former director of Amnesty International Ireland, now global director for community engagement at the Global Refugee Sponsorship Initiative. He was the founder and former director of One in Four, the support and advocacy group for adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. Jermud Martin is the former Archbishop of Dublin and spent his 17 years in office working to make the Catholic Church take responsibility after decades of clerical sexual abuse and cover-ups of clerical sexual abuse. He retired two years ago and continues to speak out on behalf of survivors, calling for transparency and accountability in the Catholic Church. Jermud Martin and Colm O'Gorman, you're both very welcome to Thank The you. Leap of Faith. <clears throat> Listening to the documentary Black Rock Boys a few weeks ago and hearing Mark and David Ryan describe the crimes committed against them by the spirit and priest Tom O'Byrne, I think a lot of people will have thought, how on earth can it be that it's still down to single individuals, victims and survivors of abuse, to have to tell their traumatic stories for us as a society to level with our failed care for children in both state and church bodies. And German Martin, you did a lot and with the Cloyne and Murphy reports to try to get the church to take responsibility. And yet, here we are again. You must be very disappointed. I must say, Colm was on an interview a few a few days after I was on an, on an interview, and my reaction to that programme was exactly the same as his. Mm. I almost couldn't listen to it. Mm. I almost wanted to turn it off. Mm. And uh, so many of the things that that appeared were reminiscent to me of, uh, you know, I, I had almost flashbacks the boys would talk about something happened to them and I'd remember somebody else where exactly the same thing had happened. And you say to yourself, you know, have we not learned the lesson? And how is it that still... Admittedly, most people who have been abused, it'll take them many years to come forward. Um, uh, But how is it that, you know, after so many years, that abuse on such a broad scale is suddenly appearing and what had happened along the way? And why hasn't someone in authority, why hasn't the church or state bodies told us the full extent of everything that happened? Why does it fall to people whose lives have been desperately affected to have to go on radio or wherever and say, this still needs to come to light and it hasn't yet come to light. I mean, I, I made a decision to hand over documents to them. I handed over about 80,000 documents because I felt until the whole story comes out, uh, we're never going to be able to realise what, what it was all about. 
Um, but why hasn't it come out? Well, I mean, it, 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 it hasn't come out because those who have a responsibility to ensure that this is not just brought out, but addressed and dealt with appropriately have not done so. In, in what I found really difficult, and I'll echo much of what Jim had said, and what, what I found really difficult about listening to the documentary, it's going to sound a little bit odd, wasn't so much the shocking revelations of the abuse that, that David and his brother both suffered. I mean, that was appalling. But actually what I found devastating was the fact that this had been known about for more than 20 years. I mean, David came forward to one and four when I was there early on in the establishment of the organisation. We founded the organisation in 2003. So all relevant authorities, both at the level of the church and at the level of the state, have known about that case and those cases for 20 years. And yet it took the two brothers making the extraordinarily brave and difficult uh, decision to lay bare all of the terrible things that they endured in a documentary for suddenly those authorities to stand up and pay attention. Like, they knew about this. They've known about it for 20 years. So the story for me isn't so much these terrible things happened. The story is these horrific things happened. The people involved came forward as adults and disclosed that to appropriate authorities of both the church and the state. And 20 years later, they were forced to make a radio documentary to force finally some kind of public reckoning or some steps uh, that might now look to address that on a more systemic level. That's, for me, the scandal. That's the appalling part. Uh, and that's the piece that we really need to drill down into. So, you know, yes, absolutely, there needs to be an investigation of all of these issues. But as part of that investigation, there needs to be an investigation of what didn't happen between, you know, those men coming forward 20 years ago and now and why uh, was there not a proper investigation? You know, the, the state, for example, has very clear obligations under international law. In the case of such violations, when it's aware, I mean, first of all, it should work to prevent them. And then secondly, um, when those violations happen, it is an obligation to guarantee truth, justice and reparations to victims of such violations. The state was on notice of those violations 20 years ago. What did it do? And more importantly, what did it not do? And that we need to understand. Because the idea that we would be, I mean, dear, but how long have you and I been talking about this, you know? Yeah. The idea that in 20 years' time, we or somebody else would be sitting in this place talking about the fact that this was known and wasn't dealt with, that, that, that's, there's a strong likelihood of that. Let's have, not cut ourselves. There's a strong likelihood of that unless something very dramatic changes. Have you two sat down before to talk about this? About this particular case, not, not really, no. no. But, not about this case, but yeah. we've, we've, we've met on, on, on many occasions and yeah. I've enormous uh, regard and respect for the leadership that Dermot has shown in this area. Yeah. But I mean, uh, in not only the interesting thing is that uh, you know the, the church over the years has 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 done a huge amount, invested a huge amount in in uh, in investigating, in setting up norms. Uh, you know, every diocese and every religious order was audited in uh, over ten years ago, including the Spiritans. Mm. Uh, and um, at that stage, they 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 had uh, I think forty seven cases noted, uh, and and they've they've increased since. Now, you know, what has what has been happening over these years? You know that this this hasn't uh, come out fully. You know? I mean, part I think part of the problem with that is that you know too often, frank, quite frankly, uh, there's a reliance upon the church to take whatever steps it deems necessary, or appropriate, yeah. and and I mean bluntly, 
you know, the church was forced and dragged into taking oh. any of the steps that it's taken over the last 20 or 30 years. You know, um, to my mind, Dermot, and I, I know you won't necessarily appreciate me saying it, but I think you're a, a fairly rare exception of a leader within the church who has been genuinely committed to transparency and accountability because we've seen very little of that. We've I, seen see, very one, little one, of that. People say to me, uh, you know, why did you do this? Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not looking for, for praise for what mm. I did. All, all, but the only answer I can give is I met, I met and listened to victims and survivors and anybody heard what I heard and anybody saw what I saw with these people couldn't have acted in another way. But problem sadly, is, but problem is, problem is, they did. did. Many did hear what had happened to victims, and they didn't respond in the way that you did. Mm. And as much as I appreciate you saying you're not looking for praise, I mean, to my mind, um, um, you did what was right, and that needs to be credited and acknowledged. Yeah. But you did what was simply right. So I understand the point yeah. that you're making. Yeah. How could anybody not, with yeah. any kind of commitment? to justice or love or compassion yeah. or simple decency yeah. not respond in the way you did it's a very good question yeah. but, but an awful lot of people it's didn't. very important and I, I see this on an international level that uh, the bishop or the superior they have to meet the victims uh, and it, it's I mean I, I, I had an arrangement that if, if, if survivors came to me they came at five o'clock in the evening when everybody else was gone uh, because uh, I didn't want didn't want them to see anybody. But you, you go down to tiny little details, you know. And I said, look, somebody arrives, they shouldn't have to sit in a waiting room with all of my predecessors' paintings there. You know, they had immediately we have to start uh, and and the discussions and uh, and they they were they were they were grueling experiences. Um, mm. uh, but uh, but it, it, so many of the stories, it, it, the, 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 I mean, I can remember saying to my secretary at one stage, a man came. I said, you know, what's he like? I have no idea. What, what, you know. And he said, he looks like a very successful businessman. And he was. But that man was crying like a baby within. within. And I remember all the details of that. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, some of these discussions, meeting with, you know, they didn't come in and say, thanks very much for meeting us. They, you, know, you, you would be floored and attacked by people who were extremely angry and rightly so, you know. Uh, but um, if if the superior you know delegates somebody else to do it, they won't quite they won't quite get it. There's, so and one of the things you're saying is that you that you did differently was that you insisted on actually meeting and hearing people, uh, and despite the imbalance in power. It sounds uh, like people opened up in in a in a in a way that didn't shy away from putting the responsibility on you but there's also a sense in which you were open to processes of transparency and accountability which simply are not part of the church's culture in this period uh, i mean transparency and accountability uh, are just the opposite of what uh, church culture was I, about I, I tell at this you, time. I'll tell you something, that I was criticised by senior church people outside this country even for doing what I did. Mm. Uh, and now the people, are, bishops are being blamed for not doing what I did. Yeah? I mean, I, I think what's remarkable about what you did was that you were prepared to be properly accountable as the Archbishop of Dublin uh, for the institution, for the failures of the institution. That's exactly what leadership mm. is about and that's what we need to see. But tragically, it's still extraordinarily rare. Yeah. I mean, you've, you've, you've heard me do it so many times talking about this in the context of the Vatican. We've never seen the Vatican demonstrate any willingness to be properly accountable. Quite the opposite of it. Um, I mean, to this day, 
the Vatican is dishonest and deceitful in, in, in how it speaks about not just this relatively recent history, but this ongoing issue of these kinds of revelations. And part of the difficulty there is it goes back to questions of accountability. It's, it's fantastic, and it's as it should be. It shouldn't be fantastic. It should be just like this, that leaders are prepared to be properly accountable. But critically, institutions and people need also to be committed to being held accountable. Mm -hmm. And there's no demonstration of that at all, it seems to me, in the main, on the part of the institutional church. And tragically, so many states seem absolutely unwilling to discharge their responsibilities to also be accountable, but to hold the institution accountable too. It, 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 it can't be acceptable that when we look at, at, at even in the case of the Spiritans, when we look at, at models of what people might, might want to see in terms of moving progress forward, like Restorative justice is a really principled approach and it's an important one. But it is, a, is it appropriate that the institution that should be held accountable for its crimes and its failings own or, or, or put in place that model? The state should be putting in place models of investigation, of truth finding and establishment, um, of delivering justice, including restorative justice. And that includes things like reparations, which is about compensation, but not just compensation. The state should be acting to make sure that those are in place. And the Spiritans and religious congregations implicated in these abuses and cover-ups should be ready to be accountable to those systems and committed to that accountability, but they should be made accountable to those systems by the state. And that's what desperately needs to happen. One of the shocking details to me about the the Ryan brothers is that they came forward in 2002 when their case was investigated the supreme court decided not to prosecute saying that the interests of justice wouldn't be served by prosecuting such an elderly person that there had to be this balance of interests effectively the, the perpetrator, I would presume, with the full support of the Spiritans, because somebody had to fund that. A very good barrister was hired Exactly. To... Ch challenged the prosecutions, as they're entitled to do, and took that all the way to the Supreme Court. The High Court initially decided that the prosecution could proceed. And as I understand it, it was the Supreme Court who decided yeah. that it shouldn't on the basis of the age of the alleged perpetrator. People will have their own view of that. I mean, mm. one view of that, and it's one I would share, is where's, where's the justice in that? Uh, because... As soon as that decision was made, that was the end of any um, possibility of criminal accountability. Um, I still think the institution uh, um, needed in some way to be held accountable before the courts, despite the fact that there's a real gap in terms of legislation that could be used to do that still uh, here in Ireland. But then also, as as, as David and, and Mark talked about in the, in the documentary, they were left sitting across the table from the Spiritans looking for them to deliver some measure of justice and that was a fairly dispiriting uh, and humiliating experience for them ultimately and it didn't deliver I mean it didn't deliver if if the only thing that that we end up with when we when we step forward to demand accountability is being being marshaled into this you know personal injury process mm. at the end of which it's designed to produce the handing over of a check and that's meant to deliver justice to victims it doesn't there's no, there's no way. It's, it's a part of the, the resolution that needs to be put in place. But I can tell you an awful lot of people walk away from that process with a check in their hands, feeling dismayed and devastated and even sullied and dirtied by the experience. Mm. And that's not OK either. And these brothers 
didn't even get an apology, didn't get an admission. They got... Uh, they still haven't. No. The Spiritans have apologised as... Uh, and this is language we've seen too often in these in these scenarios, not just involving the church, but, but in others as well, that the, the Spiritans have, have... I mean, effectively, what we get are expressions of regret for the harm that was caused to people. It's not an apology. Uh, I, I'm always struck by one, one survivor who came to me and he said, you know, the difference between saying you're sorry and asking for forgiveness. Mm. Uh, and it, it struck with me very much. If I bump into somebody in the street and I say, oh, sorry, and I move on, you know, uh, but when I say sorry, I'm in control. When I ask somebody for the, the forgiveness, I, they're in control, and and that that's the, the the power difference that you know that you know the 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 survivor has to feel that finally they are now once because when they were abused, it isn't just the horrible phys, physical dimensions of the abuse; they were robbed of their self-esteem, they were robbed of their self-worth, and they'll only they'll only be restored. Uh, when they themselves uh, are in a situation where, you know, that they're in ch- they're in charge of their lives, and that doesn't happen. There, there's a, a a new dimension which I think is important, uh, which will bring both positive and negative dimensions. And this is the whole of the new legislation on data protection. Uh, you know that uh, restorative justice will work well if the, the perpetrator is there. Uh, or the institution is there, but if they're tied by data protection and not being able to to mention names, you know you're going to get heavily redacted tests. But there's another there's another thing that's there, and that is there's a principle that uh, if you possess data about me, I own it as much as you do, and I have a right to access any data that's being held about me by any institution. Uh, and uh, you know, the, so you know that you, you, it isn't up to a, a particular re- religious order to ration out what they wish to show you. you. You have now rights in data protection law, and that's where it's important that uh, in any investigation that the power of discovery, that the, the the group has to have the power of discovery. Otherwise, um, things will be rationed out or will be anonymized to such an extent that they won't be able. To allow the person really to feel they've been they they they've they've gone through it, but yeah. it can't be another case in which we put the onus on abused individuals to do the search. Can yeah. it? There has to be a power of discovery that doesn't require them to come forward and say, "Well, you've got my data, so yeah. I need to." Somebody somebody has to be able to help them to 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 uh, exercise their rights. But it, it's not a, a, a generous grant on the other side that they are allowed to do that. These are fundamental rights. I, I agree completely with that. But if you don't mind if I step back for a moment okay. to something that you said earlier, and then I'll deal with the yeah. point on data protection, because I think it's a really important one. On that question of accountability and forgiveness and the difference between an apology and an expression of regret, to be really clear, um, I never needed the institution that was responsible for what happened to me to seek my forgiveness. I needed them to take responsibility. That's all that mattered to me. Um, because in, to my mind, forgiveness is is something, it is a very personal thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think the only person I can forgive for for is myself. So if I've done something, the only, I, I don't think it's in my gift to forgive somebody else. Neither would I withhold it. I would wish for it for every other person. So for any person who's struggling to come to terms with bad things that they've done, I would hope that a journey of, uh, um, acknowledgement and acceptance of responsibility allows them to restore themselves to a position where 
you know, they 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 live in a healthier uh, uh, possible way. But I think the critical piece in in apology is an acknowledgement of responsibility mm-hmm. and an expression of of like genuine apology. I am sorry for what my actions for the harm that my actions caused you. There's no point in in an institution expressing regret for the actions of members of the institution. That's that's ridiculous. That's redundant. And it seems to me that what's really powerful of what Dermot did and his interactions with individual survivors was as the representative of the institution of the Archdiocese, he sat there and took responsibility for what had happened, allowed people to say what they needed to say and took responsibility for that. That's powerful. Um, And at at a societal level, if that were to happen, that then becomes truly transformative. The problem is there isn't any real indication that at a systemic level, the institution of the church, and certainly not at the level of the Vatican, either understands that or is prepared to take that step. And then on the data protection point, I think it's a really, really good point. Of course, these are rights. But people have a right to truth, justice and responsibility. I've had that for a very long time in international law. And they have a, they have a right to, to, to having similar rights vindicated even under national law. People have a right to access data. But sadly, the institutions that we're talking about here have not demonstrated a willingness to cooperate with law. I mean, for, for a lot of the time, the, the church was saying that it was above state law. You know, the canon law and the law of the, the church was superior to any man-made law. So, you know, that why, that's why it comes back to this piece. And I very much agree with Dermot that investigations must have enforceable powers of discovery. Um, they must be effective, proper judicial investigations that may take a little bit longer. I don't buy the idea, by the way, the commission's investigation have to take a very long time. Mm-hmm. The commission investigation to the Dublin Archdiocese carried out its work in three years, which was remarkable. And it was a very effective investigation. So if they're set up properly and if they're run properly, they can deliver meaningful investigation and reveal really important systemic information about how these issues have been dealt with that are important beyond the individual institution or diocese that are under investigation. I think that's key. One of the things, though, that I really would like to see, and I think this would have been valuable in the case of the Dublin inquiry as well, the Commission's investigations model, because we advocated for that specifically for the, for the Dublin inquiry, has within it the capacity to hold public hearings. And I think when it's dealing with issues of that are systemic in their nature, like what was the interplay between state agencies, Angarda Shikana, HSE, Child Protection Services, church agencies, those issues should be heard publicly and should be discussed publicly. Because I think that's then where we see some more emergence of truth. And frankly, that's, that's part of, of proper accountability. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to see some of the mm-hmm. systemic issues being, being investigated and hearings on those being more public. I think there, there seems to be in, uh, among government uh, an awareness that a, a, some type of investigation has to be carried out. Um, they're obviously worried about the, ex- the expense, to, um, that's, that's one thing, but they, they don't want the thing to drag on forever. Uh, and I, I would, would, be, would be happy if it didn't do that. But you have to take the time to make sure that 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 that, that you you really dig down deeply. Um, the the commissions of investigation uh, legislation normally would would oblige the body being investigated to voluntarily provide uh, information. And the Murphy Commission very quickly realised that if that if that were to happen, anybody whose information I gave would be taking me to the High Court and we'd get nowhere. Whereas you know, having having the uh, your power of discovery. 
uh, is is a very powerful way, and it will also speed things up because it's a, it's there's a legal mm. obligation. Uh, there's just one thing I'd go back. You were saying that about apologies that uh, uh, you, you'd want them to you know, to recognise and, and uh, are accountable for what they had done to you or for what had happened to you. I wouldn't put that last thing in the past tense. Yeah, in, yeah. It's not happen, you know, it, it, it isn't something that happened in the past. It's something in many of these cases that's happening day after day. And um, uh, you know, w- when I became Archbishop, I, I said, uh, why don't we put up a notice in every church? If you've been abused, please contact this. You know, uh, tell people to... And I said, no, that, that won't work. What, what works is when something happens. Uh, when when the, the, the abuser's photograph or name appears in the newspapers. Now, I'm just thinking the, what, what happened in the last few weeks with the information about the Spiritans, how many other survivors' lives have suddenly exploded within themselves uh, and we just don't know about them, you know? Uh, that, that's the part that's, you know, equally devastating. I, I can remember when, when Suing the Pope heard in, in 2002 and actually in the documentary that for me was one of the most difficult parts was hearing David talking about watching it watching the 6-1 news with his dad and they were covering that story and that's when his dad asked him did something happen to you mm-hmm. that's your documentary about your own case yeah yeah which aired, which, which aired back in in 2002 mm-hmm. and in the same year as that documentary that we saw a significant number of suicides of, mm. of of men who were contemporaries of mine in age, at least, in the Diocese of Ferns. And I found out over the years since, because some of those families have mm. contacted me, that this absolutely related to um, their their experiences of abuse as children um, at the hands of priests in that diocese. So we know whenever these stories emerge, a lot of pain and a lot of trauma mm. surfaces. And in some cases, people simply can't live with that any longer. Mm. But in, in many other cases, people either struggle on or don't struggle on and fall apart. We, we can't wait for trauma to be triggered that's living so close to the surface in order to reach out and offer the possibility of, of healing or some kind of resolution. Because in, in, in my experience, I mean, my background is, and, and the establishment one and four was really grounded in my experience of working as a, as a therapist, working with people who had experienced sexual violence. And in all of those years working in that space, the one thing that always gave me great hope and confidence about the work was that if we create the right environment, if we create an environment where healing becomes possible, then healing gradually, slowly, painfully, but it happens because that's that's what life does. You know, that when people manifest trauma, it's it's in, in what can look like very destructive, destructive ways. It's a way of trying to cope because it can't be contained anymore internally. If we find good ways to reach out to people and offer a response that's grounded in, in, in genuine love and compassion and respect, people will come forward and people will engage. Um, you know, on, the, on that point as well about the concerns that the state has, well, I don't buy those. Um, not only do I think they're fundamentally wrong, like immoral and legally wrong, I also think they're just nonsense factually. These investigations are not very expensive. I mean, when you look at what the state spends on many, many other things, an investigation like this actually doesn't have to be extraordinarily expensive if it's done properly and if it's managed properly. Neither does it have to take a very long time. Neither will it be dragged out for, neither will it necessarily be dragged out for many, many years. 
this has been dragged out for many, many years. I mean, it's the mid 1990s since States of Fear aired, since the Brendan Smith case came out. I mean, it's the 1950s since these issues are being debated, debated in Dáil Éireann. It's taken a very, very long time. Colm O'Gorman and former Archbishop of Dublin, German Martin, thank you very much for joining us on The Leap of Faith. Leap of Faith will be back at the same time next Friday night. And if you've been affected by any of the issues discussed on tonight's programme, you can contact the Samaritans for free on the following number, 116123. Leap of Faith is presented by Siobhan Garrigan. The researcher is Sinead Kennedy. The broadcast coordinator is Jarleth Holland. And the producer is Sheila O'Callaghan. And if you'd like to contact the programme, you can email faith at rte.ie.